So tonight we begin our study in this book of Philemon, and it's really an amazing book because at the root issue in this brief letter is the whole story of a runaway slave. Now, a, a, a runaway slave is not a glamorous subject. You know, you're dealing with a slavery, which not, is not a glamorous subject. You're dealing with a crime, which is not a glamorous subject. And a runaway slave is not going out to live in high life in society. He's probably living in a very difficult situation. Yet, from this very low subject that sort of occasioned the letter, you have to say that the, the Apostle Paul here, he, he soars up almost like a heavenly eagle in the midst of this very sort of awkward subject and writes what's really a brilliant letter for us to consider this evening. So let's begin just by jumping into verse 1. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Uh, You notice Paul introduces himself here as a prisoner. This indicates for us that this brief letter was written by Paul during his Roman imprisonment, the, the Roman imprisonment that's described in Acts chapter 28. Now, there are some who believe that he wrote it from the time of imprisonment in Ephesus because there was a brief period of imprisonment that he had in the city of Ephesus, but that's an unlikely possibility. And I love how Paul always phrases it. You know, he could have very well wrote a prisoner of Rome, a prisoner from the Romans, which which would have been, um, you know, possible for him to think that way because that's, you know, it was a Roman soldier surrounding him. Yet nevertheless, he he believed very strongly that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul did not consider himself a prisoner of Rome, of circumstances, or even of the religious leaders who started all the legal trouble that resulted in his imprisonment. No, Paul, Paul was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to address the letter to Philemon, our beloved friend, Uh, He he wrote this letter to this man named Philemon, who was a Christian brother living in the city of Colossae. It's sort of interesting, uh, Colossians uh, is also written to the Christians of this city. So the city of Colossae actually had two letters written to it, one to the church in general, and then one to this individual Christian in the city of Colossae. And this is the only place in the whole New Testament where this man Philemon is mentioned by name, But we do know that he was, as it says here, a beloved friend to Paul. You know, Paul's friendship with Philemon is shown here by by something that is very significantly missing in his greeting. Paul wrote 13 letters to either churches or individuals. And in nine of the 13 letters, that's a pretty high percentage, don't you think? In nine of the 13 letters, he refers to himself as an apostle in the opening verse. In this letter, the other ones where he doesn't mention himself as an apostle are Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians. But in these few letters, Paul appeals to his reader more as a friend and less as an apostle. And so he goes on here, verse 2, he says, To the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Aphia, here, mentioned in verse 2, is a woman's name, and probably, we can't say it certainly, but but almost certainly, she was the wife of Philemon. And Archippus, it seems, was probably his son. Now, this address to family members is unique among the letters of Paul, but it makes sense considering what the letter of Philemon is all about. You see, in this letter, Paul is going to appeal to Philemon regarding a runaway slave who had met Jesus and found refuge with Paul. And in the customs of that day, 
Philemon's wife, Aphia, was the supervisor of the slaves in the household. So the letter concerned her also. He, he addresses her because in speaking about this escaped slave, he's speaking about something that would directly concern her in the management of the household. And then he says as well, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and did you notice this also in verse 2? And to the church in your house. Now this means that the church or a portion of the church in Colossae met in the house of Philemon. And, and I want to emphasize that I believe it would have been a portion of the church. It is very unlikely that the church in Colossae was so small that it could meet in one person's house, especially because in those days, houses of most everybody were not very large. What there was in Colossae is what there was in many different cities where there were Christians, was house churches scattered around that were really a function of simple necessity because simply they could not um, uh, get a larger place to meet for themselves. You see, the, the, the earliest Christians had no property of their own for church buildings. The Jews had their synagogues, but Christians met in the home of their members. And the Christians of a city would be gathered together in these different house churches with a city bishop who oversaw the different house churches. By the way, house churches are also mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 5, and in Colossians chapter 4, verse 15. We don't have any evidence of churches independent from house churches until the middle of the third century, say about the year 250. And all references point to the idea that until that time, because churches were basically prohibited, Christians were basically prohibited from having meeting rooms of their own, they, were, uh, they never purchased them, they never built them. Uh, and then he goes on in this very typical greeting. He says, grace to you and peace. This sort of customary greeting of grace and peace is found in each one of the letters of Paul. But I think it's interesting. This is not directed towards a congregation, but, but towards Philemon as an individual. Yeah, I think it's interesting. This letter is unique in the entire New Testament. The other pastoral epistles that Paul wrote, which of course would be 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, they were also written to individuals, but the character of their content suggests that they were intended to be shared with the entire congregation. In other words, when you read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, you have the idea that Paul was writing, for example, not only to Titus, but also so that the letter could be read to the entire congregation. But, but Philemon really is a personal note written by Paul to one man. And just sort of gets you thinking. This is probably only one sample of many, many other letters that were written by the Apostle Paul to many of his friends and disciples. And Paul was a man who uh, had a very warm affection for other people. He had a very eager temperament. In this idea, you would think that Paul probably wrote a lot of personal letters to other people. Well, this is one that we have preserved, one ordained by the Holy Spirit. And I think there's something else sort of explains why the book of Philemon or the letter to Philemon is in our uh, New Testament. And I'll sort of explain that at the very end. Okay, now, verse 4. Paul is going to thank God for Philemon. And I want you to be careful to pay attention to sort of every word and the way Paul phrases things. Because I think it's very deliberate and it's all intended for a particular purpose. 
I think it would be wrong to call Paul's letter to Philemon manipulative. That Paul is trying to manipulate Philemon. But I tell you what, he is speaking to him in a way that is meant psychologically to bring a certain response. And you'll understand what I mean as we get into it. Verse 4. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, and the sharing of your faith may, be, may, may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. So the first thing Paul says to Philemon is, Philemon, I'm praying for you. And whenever I pray for you, I thank God for you. You have been such a blessing to me that I pray often and gratefully for you. You know, four times in Paul's letters, he says that he makes mention of people. He said that he makes mention of the Romans when he prayed. He makes mention of the Ephesians when he prays. He makes mention of the uh, the Thessalonians when he prays. And then here he makes mention of Philemon when he prays. And I like that phrase, makes mention. It tells us that Paul did not always pray long, intricate prayers for Philemon. You know, but he often did make mention of Philemon in his prayers. And that's an okay way to pray for people. If you love somebody, you don't have to pray for them 20 minutes every day to demonstrate your love, right? You you can make mention of them in your prayers. And I would suppose that if you make mention of them in your prayers consistently, there will be times when God will, will sort of strike your spirit to pray for them in a greater way. But otherwise, it's, it's wonderful and legitimate to simply make mention of them in your prayer. And then he goes on here in verse 4, Hearing of your love and faith, Paul thanked God for Philemon because of this love and faith. First, the love and faith that he had towards Jesus, and then the love and faith that he had toward all the saints. In other words, towards all the people of God, because we know that saints in the New Testament, it does not describe a few special holy ones. It describes the entire body of Christ, the entire congregation of believers. And then he begins to pray for Philemon, as we notice here in verse 6, where he says that the sharing of your faith would become effective. In other words, oh Philemon, you're, you're such a blessing, you're doing so well, but I do pray that you would be more and more effective, that God would give you more and more effective ministry. And it's really wonderful, if you look carefully at the phrasing here in verse 6, he says that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. You see, I think you can say here that his sharing of the faith would become effective as Philemon understood the work that God did in him, which Paul speaks of in verse 6 as every good thing which is in you. And I would say this is the foundation for all effective evangelism. The overflow of a life touched and changed by God. God had done every good thing, as Paul uses the phrase, in the life of Philemon. Now it was a matter of it being acknowledged by Philemon and acknowledged by the people that he shared the faith with. And when these good things were understood, other people would come to Jesus. The reason why some sharing of the faith is not effective because we either don't know or we can't communicate every good thing that God has done for us. 
I wonder, this is just a beautiful thing. It speaks of a very wonderful thing of Philemon, knowing what God has done, it being evident in his life, and then he shares simply out of the overflow of his life. And then there in verse 7, he sort of gives sort of the, the, the end idea of his prayer for him. He says, For if with great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Paul sort of here remembered how wonderfully Philemon had met the needs of other Christians, how he effectively refreshed the hearts of others. Now, the, the impression here from verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 is that Philemon is a great guy, right? Wonderful Christian, growing in his faith. About the only thing Paul prays for him is, I just pray that you'd be even more effective in sharing your faith. You you leave verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 and say, this Philemon, he's a great guy. And can you imagine getting a letter like this from the Apostle Paul? You know, I mean, wow, Paul, you you think this of me. Boy, th- this is great. You, you can just imagine Philemon is feeling pretty good about this letter as it comes into verse 8, and he should. And nobody th- should think for a moment that Paul was lying, right? Paul wasn't lying. He wasn't deceiving. This is how he really felt about Philemon. This is what he really prayed for Philemon. But now he comes into verse 8 where he says, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Now, stop right there. Do you understand what Paul's saying right at the beginning here? He's letting Philemon know. Now, Philemon, you know, I'm going to talk to you about something. And I have every right to command you in this particular situation. I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet, as he begins here in verse 9, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. It's very clear here. Paul is going to ask a favor of Philemon. But before he asked... He appealed for love's sake instead of making a command. Now, uh, under the surface, Paul is making it very clear that he has the right to command what is fitting, yet he's making an appeal in love. I want you to think about that for a moment. You know, when we are in a position of authority, there's two ways that we can speak to somebody about what we want them to do. You can give, and, and oftentimes it's right, and sometimes it's the appropriate thing to do. You can give an authoritative command. I command you to do this, right? And, and sometimes it's necessary, sometimes it's the right thing to do. But yet there is another way to speak to somebody about to do something, and that's to appeal to them in love. It, it's quite a different sort of circumstance, right? Say, no, 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 I'm not commanding you because of my position of authority, though we all know I do, in fact, have this position of authority. No, instead, I am making an appeal to you on the basis of love. Now, Paul was not hesitant to use the command when the situation demanded it. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, is an example where Paul commanded believers. He, he wasn't afraid to use the command when it was the right thing to do, but he also had the wisdom to know when it was right to use a loving appeal. Okay, so already, just through the middle of verse 9, we sort of have the context Paul is going to ask a favor of Philemon, and instead of commanding him to do it, he's going to make a loving appeal. <laughs> I, I just love verse 9. Look at the next phrase in verse 9. Being such a one as Paul, the aged, now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. 
Isn't that great? Can't you just see Paul plucking the heartstrings of Philemon here? You know, Philemon, I have every right to command you here, but I'm going to appeal to you in love. You know, me, Paul, the old man, the prisoner for the Lord, I'm making an appeal to you. You see, Paul is asking this favor of Philemon, but before he asks, he's appealing to Philemon's sympathies by the way he describes himself. I I just want you to know that since Paul is going to make his appeal based on love, he does what he can to stir up the loving sympathy of Philemon. Philemon, before I tell you what I need from you, please remember that I'm an old man and a prisoner at that. And so here he says, okay, um, just remember all this, this old man, this, this prisoner of the Lord is, a, by the way, this prisoner of the Lord who really thinks very highly of you, we remember verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, right, is making this appeal to you, Philemon, this is what I want you to do. And then in verse 10, he states the favor. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Now, now, right there, I can just imagine Philemon reading the letter, and he's reading it, you know, in the custom of that day, they, they would read letters out loud. They would read out loud in that day. But, by the way, that's why the Bible says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You know, th- there are some people who think that that sort of discounts reading the Bible, right? Well, faith doesn't come from reading the Bible because that's not hearing. It doesn't say faith comes by reading and reading the Word of God. No, but in that day, when you read, you did hear because you would read out loud. And some people have taken that idea of faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Would you believe that Martin Luther and some of the Reformers actually had debates over the idea of whether or not a deaf person could be saved? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But that's not the idea, of course. But here, they they would read out loud. And so while he's going, he's reading the letter here on uh, Philemon. He says, "Uh, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and a little tears sort of welling up in Philemon's eyes. You think of Paul, this poor old man in prison. And then he says, I appeal to you. And okay, here it is. For my son, Onesimus. He goes, Onesimus? That's my slave. That man used to work for me and he escaped. All of a sudden, that's where he ended up. He ended up with Paul. Now, I'm over-dramatizing here. Because I have a feeling that by the time this letter actually reached Philemon, he knew the situation. But I like to pretend in my own mind that it was some dramatic revelation to him as he first read this letter. And he realized, Philemon, that's, excuse me, Onesimus, that is my escape play. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Now, please notice that. Onesimus was an escaped slave who escaped from his master, Philemon. And it seems that when Onesimus escaped, now again, where did Philemon live? Colossae. Therefore, where did Onesimus live? Colossae. Can I tell you, Colossae is a good far distance from Rome. And so it's not immediately logical that if Onesimus escapes from Colossae, that he will end up in Rome. But but apparently when Onesimus escaped, he fled to Rome and intentionally or not met with Paul. Paul, even though he was under house arrest by the Romans, led Onesimus to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he means there in verse 10 
whom I have begotten while in my chains. You see, Philemon, I want you to know that not only is Onesimus with me, but now he's born again. I begotten him again in my chains. And I consider him to be a son of mine in the faith. Now, how did Onesimus go to Rome? Well, of course, we don't naturally know. I, I'm sure this is one of those things that uh, probably many, many Christian, you know, sort of adventure novels have been written on this subject uh, because it would probably make a great story for somebody who had a creative mind. But it was very logical that Onesimus would escape to Rome, which was the biggest city of the Roman Empire. Some people say, uh, the historians will, will tell you that Rome was sort of a natural gathering place for these sort of off-scourings of society, such as escaped slaves. But, but you see, at this providential meeting with Paul in Rome, Onesimus happened to meet the man who led his master Philemon to Christ. And so now Paul can say, Philemon, I led you to Christ. Now I've led this escaped slave of yours to Christ. Now, again, I can only imagine how it went. I, I imagine, I can't say with certainty, but I, I imagine that when Paul was in Colossa, that he met Onesimus. And I mean, again, I'm sort of writing the novel in my mind, you know, filling in all the blanks. Paul meets uh, Onesimus when he's there in the city of Colossa, and he leads his, his master Philemon to Christ, and Philemon just falls in love with Jesus. And, and, but Onesimus, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And I imagine that when Paul's in Colossae, again, I'm just making this up. I'm writing, if anybody, want to, you want to write the novel, just send me some of the royalty checks because I'm sort of giving you all the creative ideas for it right here. You know, I just imagine in my mind that there's Paul together with, with uh, Anismus, and Anismus rejects the gospel from Paul. He, he just, no, I want nothing to do with it. And then eventually Paul moves on and ends up in jail in Rome. And then Anismus escapes from Philemon. And Anismus is drawn to the center of the Roman Empire. Empire, where there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of slaves in Rome. No, I would say hundreds of thousands of slaves in Rome. And, and there they are, all together in the city, and through probably some crazy providential arrangement, Paul and Onesimus come together, and Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. No, he wouldn't receive Christ when he was in Colossae, but the circumstances of life since his escape you know, lead him to the place where now he becomes a Christian, and now Paul makes his appeal on behalf of Onesimus. Now, matter of fact, when Paul made this appeal on behalf of Onesimus, he was following deep traditions in Roman culture. There was an ancient Greek law, which was inherited by the Romans, allowing any escaped slave sanctuary at an altar. Now, the altar could even be the hearth of a family home. And the head of the family, if an escaped slave came in and, and, you know, sort of grabbed on, laid hold of the hearth of the family home and said, I come here to seek refuge as an escaped slave, then the head of the family was obligated to give that slave protection while he tried to persuade him to return to his master. If the slave refused, the head of the family would put the slave up for auction and then give the price of the slave to the former master. Now, Paul gave Onesimus protection when he was in Rome, and now he's working the issue out with Philemon. This is totally consistent with the cultural surrounding that Paul and Philemon, and Onesimus for that matter, would be familiar with. 
But notice how he refers to him. You saw that there in verse 10. My son, Onesimus. I can just imagine Philemon reading that letter and reading that line over and over again. My son, Onesimus. And Philemon thinking, what do you mean, my son? My slave, Onesimus. Forget about your son, Onesimus. That's my slave, Onesimus. And then he goes on, again, verse 10. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but is now profitable to you and to me. Now, in some way, Onesimus became profitable to Paul. We don't know how. Perhaps he served as an assistant to Paul during his house arrest. So, uh, during this period, as, as Philemon's runaway slave Onesimus was unprofitable to Philemon, right, because he'd escaped, What good was Onesimus doing Philemon? Nothing. But now he had become profitable to Paul. And by the way, therefore, by extension, profitable to Philemon. Notice what he says here. Who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and me. How was Onesimus profitable to Philemon now? Well, because he was helping Paul, who was Philemon's, friend. If he's helping Paul, he's helping Philemon as well. Now, what's really interesting about this is not so much what Paul says in verse 11, although, of course, it's interesting about the idea of profitable and unprofitable. But when he really uses it there, he's using a play on words. Do you know what the name Onesimus means? It means profitable. And so what he's really saying is he's saying, hey, listen, Philemon, now that Onesimus is a Christian, he can live up to his name. He's being profitable. Now, notice this. By making this clear to Philemon already in verse 11, Paul is gently hinting at something he's going to say more straightforwardly later. He's gently hinting at the idea that he would like to keep the services of this escaped slave. He's not commanding Philemon to do it, but he goes, you know, um, he's, uh, he's doing me a lot of good here, Philemon. He's really helping me out a lot. I just want you to know that. He's a big help to me. Now, going on here, verse 12, I am sending him back. Now, it may very well be that Onesimus carried this letter back to his master. Could you imagine that? Onesimus shows up at his door. The escaped slave returns. And, and just about as the master Philemon, you know, going back maybe to his old ways, to his old instincts, is about to give that escaped slave the beating of his life. He says, oh yeah, um, Paul, your friend, our friend, gave me this letter to give to you. He says, verse 12, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Again, here's Paul just making brilliant use of psychology. First, he establishes a principle. I am not going to steal Onesimus away from Philemon, Right? I will only keep the services or gain the services of Onesimus if Philemon gives him unto me. So Paul sent Onesimus back, 
Because look, let's face it, Anismus had done something wrong in that he had escaped from his master. It was time to set that right. And so Paul was willing to send him back. Yet obviously, Paul wanted Philemon to deal gently with Anismus. You see, under Roman law, the slave owner had complete and total control over his slaves. It wasn't unusual for slaves to be crucified for lesser offenses than escaping from their master. You know, one ancient writer describes how a slave was carrying a tray of crystal goblets and then he dropped and broke one of the crystal glasses. The master instantly demanded that the slave be thrown into a fish pond full of dangerous eels that instantly tore the slave to pieces. Roman law gave the absolute authority of life or death over a slave into the power of the master. And considering the huge number of slaves in the Roman Empire, they thought that the harsh punishment against escaped or rebellious slaves was necessary. You know, the Roman Empire had as many as 60 million slaves. And there were constant fears of a slave revolt. Therefore, laws against runaway slaves were strict. And when captured, a runaway slave, he might be crucified... If he wasn't crucified, he was usually branded with a red-hot iron on his forehead with the letter F for fugitive. Now, considering this, we understand Paul's phrase. Look at what he says there in verse 12. It's very radical. I'm sending him back. You, therefore, receive him my own heart. It's as if he's saying, Philemon, I know this man has done you wrong and deserves to be punished, but consider him as my own heart, and be merciful to him. And then he goes on in verse 13, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my change for the gospel. Clearly, Paul wanted Onesimus to stay because he had become a big help to Paul, and Paul sweetened his appeal to Philemon in three ways. First of all, he says, you know, Philemon, if Onesimus stays with me, he can serve me on your behalf. That's what he says there in verse 13, on your behalf. You know, uh, Philemon, if you leave Anisimus with me, it's like you serving me because Anisimus is your servant. And Philemon, wouldn't you love to serve me in this way? And then he says, secondly, if Anisimus stayed, he helped a man in chains. Did you see that in verse 13? On your behalf, he might minister to me in chains. Philemon, look, I know Onesimus might be of some use to you, but I'm in chains and I can use all the help I can get. And then thirdly, if Onesimus stayed, he helped a man in chains for the gospel. That's at the very end of verse 13, that he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. Philemon, please don't forget why I am here in chains. Remember that it is for the sake of the gospel. Now listen, at the same time, as Paul says in verse 14, without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. Paul made his appeal very strongly, very skillfully, as we see here, right? He knew exactly what he's talking about. At the same time, he really did leave the decision up to Philemon. He would appeal in love But don't you love this about Paul? He would not trample over the rights of Philemon. 
Philemon, you're an independent Christian man. And even though I really think I know what the right thing is to do in this, I'm going to appeal to you in love. I'm going to use all the skill. I'm going to use all the psychology I can muster. But at the end of the day, it is your decision to make. Why? And this was a very important principle to Paul. Look at it at the end of verse 14. That your good deed might be done by compulsion, as it were. Excuse me, might not be done by compulsion, but as it were, be voluntary. This explained why Paul would not force a decision on Philemon. If Paul demanded it, then Philemon's good deed would be done by compulsion and it wouldn't be voluntary. This would make the whole affair very unpleasant and rob Philemon of any reward he otherwise might have had, right? I mean, if Paul says, listen, um, I'm the apostle. I'm the one who led you to the Lord. He's doing me a lot of good. Uh, Philemon, I'm just taking Onesimus. That's all there is to it. Why why don't you just deal with it? God's told me it's okay, and and that's all there is to it. And Philemon might say, you know, okay, you know, that's all go along. But where's the reward for Philemon in that? But yet if Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, and I would like to, I'd appeal to you out of love, send him back to me. Now, when Philemon sends him back, well, what a blessing it is for Philemon. Now he gets to say, I decided to do this. I had the choice either way. We could say, essentially, Paul gave Philemon the freedom to do what was right in love before the Lord, And he gave him the freedom to do it out of his own choice and not out of Paul's compulsion. Now, Philemon is now going to hear from Paul a little bit of what we might call the backstory of how all this happened. Look here, verse 15. He says, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Notice this, in verse 15, he says that he departed, and he departed for a while. It's true that Philemon departed, but Paul would send him back. Somehow, departed for a while, don't you love how Paul describes this? It's one thing to say escaped slave, right? That sounds kind of harsh on the ears. But when you say departed for a while, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? Paul doesn't say, well, certainly he escaped from you with all deception and, you know, cunning. He doesn't say that. Well, he departed for a while. For, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose. You see, in some ways, the escape of Onesimus was nothing but trouble. It deprived Philemon of a worker, an asset. It made Onesimus a criminal, possibly subject to a death penalty. You could just imagine how Philemon felt when Onesimus left. Onesimus is gone. Oh, who's going to do his work? How am I going to buy another slave? How am I going to train somebody else? Oh, that messes up everything in the household. It would seem nothing but trouble. But Paul says to Philemon, listen, perhaps there was a purpose in it. There was a purpose of God in this, and he wanted Philemon to see this purpose also. But please notice, I think this is very interesting how Paul words it here in verse 15. He says, for perhaps... He departed a while for this purpose. I think that that phrase, for perhaps, is important because it showed that Paul did not come to Philemon in this manner. This is what Paul did not say to Philemon. Philemon, God has shown me that his hidden hand is at work and you must accept what I see also. No. Those words, for perhaps, means that Paul's heart was like this. He was saying, Philemon... 
It seems to me that God is working in unusual ways here. Let me tell you what I see, and perhaps it will make sense to you. I'm just so impressed that Paul sort of sort of bends over backwards, so to speak, to not trample over Philemon with, with a wrong use of spiritual authority. So he says, look, th- this might be God's purpose in all of this, Philemon. I want you to consider this. What's the purpose? Look at the end of verse 15, that you might receive him forever. You know, he escaped from you for a while, but now when he come back, comes back to you, since he's a believer, you have received him forever. You're going to spend eternity with him now. Now, isn't that worth it? For him to leave you for a matter of months, that you might have him forever as a brother in eternity? And you got to admit, Philemon would read that, and he'd go, you know what? I, that is a fair trade. I didn't like it when he left. I felt ripped off. It was wrong. That was not good. But you know what? Um, if I have received this man now as a brother for eternity, I, I can deal with that. And then he goes on in verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You see, Paul now is sort of reintroducing Onesimus to Philemon. It's like he's saying, um, Philemon, there's somebody I'd like you to meet. It's Onesimus. Onesimus, your brother in the Lord. Now, ever before, had Philemon thought about Onesimus as a brother in the Lord? No, because he wasn't. But now he says, whoa, I have to change everything in my conception of my relationship with this man because now he is my brother. In this relationship of brothers and not slaves, I want you to understand this, Paul effectively abolished the sting of the master-slave relationship and he laid the foundation for the eventual legal abolition of slavery. Listen, if a man is a stranger to me, I might make him my slave. But how can my brother be my slave? And so when Paul introduces a slave to his master and says, he is your brother, can you see there that Paul is laying the groundwork for the abolition of slavery? This, This breaking of the distinction between master and slave was an absolutely revolutionary development. It did far more to change society than the passing of a law to prohibit slavery. Now just think about Paul. And if you want to abolish slavery, you're the Apostle Paul in the ancient world. How is Paul going to abolish slavery? Um, I'll start campaigning before the Roman Senate. You know, I'll picket outside the the, the Caesar's palace and say, hey, uh, let my people go or something like that. I don't know. You know, I'll start the political action committee and we'll get a lot of signatures, you know, that we should. And, And so Paul goes around and he tries to find somebody who doesn't have a slave. Well, gee, um, all the free men around here, they all have slaves. I can't get them to sign the petition. Paul Paul could think about, how can I do this? All those political things wouldn't have worked at all for Paul. But yes, Paul's on. I, I can abolish slavery by showing masters that their slaves can be their brothers and sisters. And how can you treat your brother or sister in Christ harshly? How, how can you hold them and regard them as a slave? You can see here that Paul did beautifully what what no law could do. What what the letter to Philemon does is it brings the institution of slavery into an atmosphere where it can only wilt and die. 
It's the, the whole principle of the transformation of the individual being the key to the transformation of society and the moral environment. Spurgeon said something great on this point. He said this, he said, but mark this word. The true reforming of the drunkard lies in giving him a new heart. The true reclaiming of the harlot is to be found in a renewed nature. I see certain of my brethren fiddling away at the branches of the tree of vice with their wooden saws. But as for the gospel, it lays the axe to the roots of the whole forest of evil. And if it be fairly received into the heart, it fells all the bad trees at once. And instead of them, there springs up the fir tree, the pine tree, and the box tree together to beautify the house of our master's glory. This shows the transformation of the society by transforming the individuals within the society. You know, you can pass a law against hatred. It's against the law to hate somebody else. But you know what? That'll never change the human heart about hatred. But yet, if you bring somebody to Jesus Christ and put this abiding principle of love in their heart and give them a new nature created according to the nature of Jesus Christ, that is an abiding thing that will destroy the power of hate. Verse 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. You see, Paul's laid out his argument. He's laid out the whole thing. He's introduced, remember Philemon, this man Onesimus, now you should regard him as your brother, not, not just as your slave. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. Do you see how he does this? Paul stood beside Onesimus requesting mercy. He said, if I am your partner in the gospel, then treat Onesimus the same way you would treat me. Now listen, Paul's appeal is powerful because he stood beside a guilty man. Now Paul couldn't be there physically, right? He couldn't stand on the doorstep of Philemon's house with Onesimus beside him and make this appeal. So he did it through his letter. But figuratively speaking, Paul is standing right next to Onesimus on the doorstep of Philemon's house. And as he stands beside a guilty man, he says to the owner of the slave, I know this man is a criminal. I know that he deserves to be punished. Yet this slave is my friend. And if you're going to punish him, then punish me also. I stand beside him to take his punishment. Do you understand that that's what Jesus does for us before our master, our God and father? We come and put ourselves beside Jesus and we come to God the Father and Jesus stands beside us and he says, Now, Father, I want you to accept this guilty one. He's guilty, but I want you to receive him back into your house and I want you to receive him as a son into your family. Yes, he'll be your slave, but regard him as a son too. And it's almost as if Jesus says, And Father, if you reject him, then reject me also. And of course, the Father would never reject the Son, but he also says this. He says, Whatever punishment, he deserves you put it on me that's what jesus does he, he reintroduces us us rebels escaped slaves from our father's household he brings us back in and he stands beside us just the way that paul did stand beside anisimus at least in the figurative sense through this letter as he says very plainly he says if he has wronged you or, or owes you anything Put that on my account. 
I, Paul, am writing with my own hand, I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me your own self besides. Now we'll get into that last phrase in a moment. See how dramatically Paul says this? He says, listen, if he's wronged or owes you anything, put that on my account. Apparently, when Onesimus escaped, he also stole from Philemon. Now you must admit, this is a pretty big financial calculation involved here, right? I mean, slaves were worth money. And we can take it that Onesimus was probably worth something, and he probably stole things as he escaped, and there was probably a bounty on his head besides. This in itself was a capital crime. Paul asks that the value of what he stole, that the value of the bounty on his head, the value of the slave himself, add it all together, and he says, put it on my tab, Philemon. I'll pay it. And then to make it even more strong, look at what he says there in verse 19. He says, I Paul am writing with my own hand. Now, by the way, we know Paul's custom, right? Typically to dictate his letters. That was the common way in the ancient world. But we almost get the feeling that here at verse 19, he goes over to whoever's writing the letter for him. You know, in the first um, verse, he mentions Timothy, our brother. So maybe it was Timothy. He goes over to Timothy and says, give me that pen. And he, and he writes this with his own hand. And you can notice because the, the lettering is different on the scroll that Anismus delivered to Philemon. And he says, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. It's like a personal IOU, a personal note that says, I owe this to you. Charge the wrong to Onesimus to my account. I want you to understand this. Paul essentially did for Onesimus what Jesus did for us in taking our sins to his account. Isn't that what Jesus does? Hey, Father, you charge his sins to my account. I will pay it all. Now, I don't know how Paul had the financial means to do this. There's a few possibilities. It could be that Paul had a good bit of money. Maybe he made good money in his business. Maybe he had support. We know that churches were supporting him. We know that that the Philippians support him. We know that other people did. Maybe he had received good gifts. He was probably a a wise man. He probably had money at his resources. This may be one reason, for example, why the Romans kept him imprisonment so long because they were expecting a bribe from him. We know that from the book of Acts, that that one of his seasons of jail before Agrippa or Festus, I can't tell you, I forget exactly which one, but, but they were hoping to receive a bribe from him. So it shows that Paul had some kind of access to money, or at least people perceived that he did. So it could very well be that Paul had the money to do this and Paul meant every single word in a very literal sense when he said, uh, Philemon, the next time I see you, I'm going to pay this to you, whatever the value is. But it may also be that Paul is sort of hoping that Philemon would respond by saying, listen, don't, don't worry about it. Especially with how he ends verse 19. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Let me read beginning at verse 9. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand, I will repay. Uh, Not to mention that you owe me your own self besides. Um, It's almost as if Paul's saying, you know, finally, look, I'll pay it. I will. Honestly, I'll pay it. Maybe Paul had the money or I'll get the money, whatever. And it was probably a high price. I'll pay it. But let's take a look at the ledger sheet here, Philemon. Um, I owe you this great amount of money for Onesimus and whatever he stole and whatever bounty was on his head. But let's think about what you owe me. Your own life in Jesus Christ? Didn't I bring something pretty precious to you? 
again, you have to say, Paul is saying, look, as long as we're studying the accounts, as long as we're talking about what I owe you, maybe we should just think just for a moment about what you owe me. Philemon, remember that I have a lot of credit on your account because you owe me your own self besides. There's a sense in which we could say that Paul could afford to pay Onesimus' expenses because there was a sense in which Philemon owed Paul his salvation. So you can see how wisely, how tactfully he puts the case to Philemon. Verse 20. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Uh, But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. (laughs) Now this is great. Again, you just see the, the psychology of Paul here. He's brilliant. He knew people. He really did. He was an astute observer of human nature. First of all, in verse 20, he says, Yes, brother, Let me have joy from you in the Lord. Now, again, I don't know if you can grab it. Perhaps the translation that is in front of you is a little bit better than the translation that's in front of me. Because my translation says, let me have joy in the Lord. But you know what the word joy there is more literally? It's the ancient Greek word for prophet. It translates the ancient Greek word onemeni, which is the root word for the name onesimus. Let me have joy from you in the Lord. Paul's almost making a pun saying, let me have Onesimus from you in the Lord. He's using another play on words and the name Onesimus to communicate a not very subtle request. Let me have Onesimus back from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. You see, isn't it beautiful? Before, earlier, Paul said that Philemon was a man who had refreshed the heart of the saints. He says that in verse 7. But but now, specifically, Philemon says, uh, or excuse me, Paul tells Philemon how he can refresh Paul's heart by allowing Onesimus to return back to Paul. And then he says, again, brilliant psychology, verse 21, having confidence in your obedience, right? Oh, Philemon, I know you'll do the right thing. I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. His letter's full of hope, but it's also full of appeal. He had every reason to believe that Philemon would fulfill his Christian duty and indeed do even more than Paul asked for. But listen, in the meantime, why don't you prepare that guest room for me? It shows the close relationship between Paul and Philemon. He knew that hospitality was always waiting for him at Philemon's home. And he trusted that through Philemon's prayer, through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Now, the very end of the letter here, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Um, Here he's mentioning these ones who are perhaps companions of his, visitors, as he says, fellow prisoners, Uh, So here he mentions this group, these common friends that they would have in Rome. And then finally, he ends the letter with the great line, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. I I think we see some wonderful, enduring principles from this letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. Number one, we see that Paul never called for an overthrow of the system of slavery. Yet, The principles in the letter to Philemon destroyed slavery. 
The greatest social changes come when people are changed one heart at a time. And in our society, racism and, for example, a low value of the unborn, those things can't be eliminated by laws, but a change of heart can and must occur. Secondly, we see another big principle in this letter. Hey, Onesimus was obligated to return to his master, right? When we do something wrong, we must do our best to set it right. Being made a new creation in Jesus Christ, and that's what 2 Corinthians 5.14 says we are, right? 5.17, excuse me, it says we are. Being a new creation in Christ does not end our responsibility to make restitution. Matter of fact, it increases our obligation to make restitution even when it's difficult. Can you imagine the talk that Paul would have with Onesimus? Onesimus receives the Lord. Oh, Paul, I know what you've been talking about all the time. You tried to tell it to me back when I was in Colossae. And my master Philemon received the Lord, but I never did. Oh, but now I'm a believer and it's so great. And Paul starts to disciple him and he starts putting down some wonderful roots in the Christian faith. And then Paul, you know, I don't know, after a few days, after a few weeks, I don't know, maybe after a month, I don't know what the period of time was. But Paul says, you know, uh, Onesimus, I need to talk to you. Um, you have to go back to Philemon. Onesimus' eyes get very big. What, you, you don't like what I'm doing for you here? Oh, no, 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 I love it. I hope he'll send you back to me. But, but Onesimus, you did something wrong. And, and Christian love demands that you set it right. Imagine how difficult that would be for Onesimus. But he had to agree. You're right. I have to make restitution. Third, Onesimus was morally responsible for the wrong that he did. You, you see, the letter to Philemon demonstrates that we're not primarily directed by economics. You can't say, well, he was a poor slave, therefore he was justified in his protest against the oppressive ruling class. No. Despite the ideas of some Marxists and some modern liberals, whether rich or poor, we're to be directed by the Spirit of God, not by our economic status. And so it's right for both the rich and the poor to, to restore something when they've stolen it, to, to set something right when they've done wrong. See, it's really a wonderful principle here that this letter that Paul wrote to Philemon expresses in the big picture. And the very last word of the letter, amen. And when you finish a letter like this, I, I think it's fair to ask, you know, if, if Paul wrote so many letters, in probability, we can't say for certain, I'm sort of guessing at this, if Paul wrote so many letters, why is just one of them preserved here in the New Testament? Well, I can tell you from a spiritual sense, we see the enduring value of this letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, how it just shows us the principles that we just discussed and how it teaches them to us very, very strongly. And it's a wonderful thing that we see this heart that Paul had for, for, for uh, Onesimus and for Philemon himself. But on a practical measure, you say, how, how does a letter like this get preserved? You know, in the year A.D. 110... Historical records tell us that the bishop of Ephesus was named Onesimus. And it very well could have been the same man. If Onesimus was in his late teens or early 20s when Paul wrote this letter, then he would have been about 70 years old in the year A.D. 110. And that was not an unreasonably old age for a bishop in those days. Now, it's interesting. 
Ignatius, in his epistle to the Ephesians, makes mention of Onesimus, the pastor of Ephesus, or the bishop of Ephesus, after Timothy. And there's some historical evidence that the letters of Paul were first gathered together in a group in the city of Ephesus. I can't prove it, but I think it's a wonderful thought. I've been talking a lot this Bible study about things I can't prove, right? But isn't it a nice thought of the letters of Paul being gathered together at Ephesus under the direction of the bishop of Ephesus, a man named Onesimus, and as he gathers together 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and all those, I mean, because all, all these belong in the collections of, of Paul's letters. And then he draws out one scroll, one scroll that's relevant to him. He says, you know, this, this is the letter that Paul wrote about me. This belongs in the collection of letters as well. This letter, his charter of freedom, he says, this belongs in the collection as well. Well, it it's, can be entertaining to speculate about such things. But one of the wonderful things we see that we don't have to speculate is how this letter shows us how God transforms individuals and how Paul did, in a symbolic way, exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He stood next to us, next to that guilty person, and he said, whatever wrong he has done, you put it on my account. You... And I can now be Onesimus before God, profitable to God, where before we were unprofitable because someone stood beside us and paid the price to reunite us with our master. Father, we pray that you would just um, inspire us with that idea. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it gives us enough to think about in the sense of speculation But Lord, we always want to put that sort of speculation in a definite second place behind the clear and wonderful teaching of your word that shows us that Jesus Christ stood beside guilty sinners and said, charge their sin to my account. Thank you, Lord, for showing us. Thank you for men like the Apostle Paul that you raised up with the same heart of Jesus. And show us how we can bring freedom and liberty to others in Jesus' name. Amen.